Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. With me on the show today is Benjamin Markovitz, a leadership expert and the founder of CEO on the Rise Institute. And today we're going to be talking about CEOs and your employees. Are they leaving in hordes and how do you fix it? Benjamin, let's jump in. How can leaders solve the talent shortage with radical growth? So let's start with what's radical growth? The idea of radical growth would be to make it normal to expect your most underperforming employees to change for the better. And instead of figuring that because of their underperformance, just going to decline and spiral until they're done, to actually say there's some pretty simple things that I can do as a leader to ensure that they actually reverse course and that the vast majority of our successful talent in the future is going to come from people for whom we do that as opposed to people who we just hunt and scour for uh, and already kind of come in as superstars. It's an opportunity, not just a solution. It's something we need to be doing more of, I think. So that's radical human growth rather than radical top line growth. Right, exactly. Yeah, about personal development and the concept that most of the time when we are considering somebody to be declining in performance, we are writing them off simultaneously. And we don't usually become aware of that as leaders. We usually think we're giving them all the help we can, or we're doing what we're supposed to do, which is give them a shot and uh, see how they do. And then sort of basic structures, performance improvement plans will take care of the rest. My experience with this started in my prior career. I was a school founder and principal and worked almost entirely with populations of students who had been disadvantaged and left behind by the school system. And what that meant was I got to watch teacher after teacher beat the odds. If there were students in your classroom who were not succeeding, that teacher was on the hook for their results, whether or not those kids were going to turn around. And so the teacher essentially made it their responsibility to reverse performance trajectories. What that meant was any classroom that was beating the odds was consistently being led by a leader, that is a teacher, who was able to reverse performance trajectories just day in and day out. You know, if we drew an analogy to most of the leaders I work with now, if they had been those teachers, it would have been routine for them to have about 100 employees, none of whom were doing all that well at their jobs, none of whom wanted to be there, many of whom had good, righteous reasons for not wanting to be there, and in the best cases, all of whom started succeeding just because of this leader. Because I saw teacher after teacher do that with dozens and eventually hundreds of, of students, I started relying on my understanding of how they operated more often than I was relying on conventional ideas of how leaders led in the for-profit space. And so most of my um, advice and counsel with leaders now, regardless of what company they lead or what sector they're in, is pulling from the best teachers I ever saw who really helped kid after kid beat the odds. And I think what we took from that was a set of principles and tools that was common to all those teachers and is actually not all that hard for us to, to learn and use as leaders. Let's go through then some of the principles and tools so our listeners can understand what you were seeing and how to shift from a school environment to kind of a corporate or nonprofit environment, specifically in a leadership role 
rather than a teacher role. To take the most salient story that we have in the education space and then translate that into industry, there's a, a well-known educational experiment took place about 50 years ago called the, the Rosenthal Experience, led by a researcher for whom it's named. In this experiment, they took a number of schools and 20% of the students were described as intellectual bloomers to their teachers at the beginning of the year. And this was based on an IQ test. And they found that when they did that by the year's end, those same students in that 20% had in fact done much better than their classmates. But the twist of the experiment was the IQ test at the beginning was a fake. And the students' labels were actually randomly assigned by the experimenters. So the authentic gains over the school year occurred not because those kids had higher potential than their peers, but because the teachers had implicitly communicated these expectations to their students. And the students had performed better as a result. And so when you see great teachers beating the odds, they're typically doing it, in my experience, because of that, because they recognize that identity and relationships define performance, particularly for folks who are struggling, much faster than performance does. So our typical way of helping kids do better in school would be to make them do work, have them do more of it, and if they get better at it, tell them so and have them do even more of it. When in fact, the folks who are succeeding, particularly with those who are not typically succeeding, so a kid who's multiple grade levels behind, for example, they have somehow managed to communicate to that kid they are intellectually strong already, even before their performance has proven it. When we see folks doing that in schools, we typically think, you know, that's an inspiring teacher. And there's a level of inspiration there that we sort of don't quote unquote teach the typical CEO outside of schools. But the truth of the matter is, is it tends to work just as well. We just don't as instinctively use it. I was recently working with a woman named Margaret. She was a million dollar executive at a, I'll just say a multinational tech giant. She's inspirational leader herself. Her parents immigrated from Taiwan when she was four. She spent most of her childhood as their translator, as their advocate, as their business manager. She has a bunch of prestigious degrees and becomes a really a top marketing consultant nationally. She wrote a book on marketing that's canonical and a fair amount of top business schools. She ends up you know, in this high-stage VP role at this company, but she starts this gig in the middle of the, of the pandemic. And in fact, uh, simultaneously has to unify two groups, specifically product and engineering, that need to work closely together, but couldn't have more different cultures. They're actually very averse to each other. And as she starts to run the group virtually, she recognizes that each group is just chock full of underperformers who should have been demoted as the company grew and that nobody on either team wants to work with. When the COVID restrictions ease a bit, she decides to kind of pin all her hopes on this unification to an in-person retreat. And you know, through a mutual friend, she had, she had asked me to facilitate it. She told me that her goals were extremely high. She wanted to improve performance across many people whose performance was low. She wanted to improve culture. She, of course, wanted to unify the team. And when I tell her about some ways we might pull that off, I, I tend to reference what we know about high-performing teachers and how they set this identity for performance even before performance is strong. They declare you know, these bold expectations, and they make those the identity of the team uh, in order for the team to live up to it. 
she is a little confused conflating kids and classrooms with her employees and her team, but she indulges me, trust me. You know, I really watch as she walks her team who've at this point never met her before in person through a treat that looks strikingly similar to, you know, that first day of class in an excellent teacher's room. She tells them what it takes to succeed on this team. She tells them exactly what it will look like. They digest what they'll accomplish this quarter and and the goals they'll reach, and they practice the most important ways they'll show up on the team to ensure that they are who the whole community already claims they are. And I think most important of all, she tells story after story of how they are already living up to this. So that was the major work she and I did before the retreat is like, if these are the standards you want, even if you've only seen them 5% of the time, tell every story in that 5%. So you communicate to these folks, not just this is what I expect of you, but this is already what you're doing. And that's the lesson from great teachers is that the difference between this is what I expect of you and this is what you're already doing is absolutely massive in terms of what people are willing to do in order to improve. It's a little surprising to think of it that way, but I think it helps to think back to a moment when maybe you happen to overhear somebody say that you were great at something you thought you were kind of lousy at and how that made you approach that thing, right? So if you felt you were a terrible public speaker and then overheard you know, somebody saying like, I really love that speech that Martin made the other day, or like, he's such a strong speaker, I really want him to speak at this event. The next time you plan a speech, you'll be operating with that expectation of yourself and the knowledge that you actually have something to win and maintain there. And that is really the truth. I mean, if there is a secret sauce to how these teachers are turning around kids' trajectories, that's it. The question is, why don't we more instinctively do that as leaders outside of a classroom space? And I'm seeing a lot of folks really strike it big with that approach. So it sounds like the use of story where I capture what someone has done well and amplify it as if they can consistently do it rather than Benjamin did this thing well, but then 95% of his time he misses the mark. That's right. Instead, they're amplifying the 5% that's brilliant and people are able to then live into that story. Exactly. Live into is actually a phrase I use a lot. It seems to really capture what, what is happening there. And it's not just selecting the stories, but like really kind of using praise in general and recognition in general as your primary lever for performance improvement. A few days ago, I heard somebody uh, say to their team, I noticed that you got the input of multiple stakeholders on this proposal you sent over last week. And that let us know that this idea had strong support. And I told others, that's what our proposals need going forward. So just used an exemplar from one employee as a kind of message to the rest of the team. And it turned out this employee actually was not a strong performer at that time. So it was a bold choice to do this. And a lot of us think I shouldn't do that. If somebody is struggling, I should not compliment them because they'll get the wrong idea. When in fact, actually that's how their story eventually turns towards success. It communicates that you know this person is capable of something more, which begins to affect how they see themselves fundamentally, which then pushes them to work harder. On the, on the next project they take on, just like those intellectual bloomers, quote unquote, did in that experiment uh, years ago. So you're, you're actually asking somebody to raise their own expectations of themselves, which is sort of encourages them to make an identity leap, a leap of faith into a new identity, living into that, um, that improves their performance. Again, it takes very little time. It's a very simple tool, 
I believe it can be transformative when a leader sees small improvements and names them out loud like this. But we do neglect it, I think, almost criminally as leaders. You know, it's so efficient. It's so cheap for us to perform those tasks, but we, we really don't instinctively do it a lot. That's the identity piece and the relating. So I call out, again, Benjamin did this thing exceptionally well in front of other people. Yeah. So Benjamin then develops or bolsters his identity as good at public speaking or good at problem solving and others reinforce that amplification. So then if you want to underperform, not that people want to underperform, but if you see yourself as an underperformer, you're also reinforced by those with whom you relate. So when you don't feel it, they may. That's right. And it also, it's serving a purpose for them as well, which is to say, this is who we already are. My peers do this, I should probably do it too. So it's kind of benign, positive peer pressure, another great teaching tool. What I'd also see is that it reverses a really nasty trend that I believe is actually behind so much turnover these days, which is just people feeling out of step and sort of disconnected from their leaders. The adage of, you know, people join organizations, but they leave leaders. I do happen to believe in that, but I also see the space shifting so radically right now away from traditional, what we might call patriarchal leadership, away from an up or out culture. And I think we've always known what the problems in in those cultures are, but we feel a lot more empowered to speak out about it now. And the trend of the great resignation empowers people to say, here's what I don't like about bosses right now. And I do actually think a festering sore at the heart of this disconnection is when people underperform, they tell themselves a story that their boss disapproves of them, even if the boss is not disapproving of them, even if the boss has no awareness of their underperformance, and even if the boss is behind the scenes supportive. Many of us tell the story when we make a mistake, oh, I've lost all support from my leader, and we will spiral with that story. And in fact, we will spiral in contrary motion to the direction of the organization. So for example, I saw uh, an employee at a tech firm uh, a couple months ago who was brand new on the job, was overwhelmed on their first day, like literally their first day, and basically confessed to me later after a lot of improvement had happened that they went home that day and planned to quit because they assumed they could never bounce back after a terrible first day. And in fact, it was many, many days before this person whose performance was improving felt like they were successful at all. And they conflated that success and that feeling of success with being accepted and welcomed by their team, even though their team was completely neutral throughout. So if your employees who are screwing up, let's say, constantly believe that with every screw up, you as a leader are distancing yourself from them they are moving further and further away from the organization. And in fact, maybe they are seeking approval in, again, contrary emotion. Maybe they find the other folks who are underperforming and feeling disapproved of, and they roll their eyes with them across the meeting room, or they grab drinks with them after work and talk trash about the organization and the boss, and a whole subculture and toxic culture starts to develop. When in fact, all that's needed to counter the assumption that the leader is disconnected and disapproves of me is a split second of approval for anything. That all a leader would have to do is notice something strong that that person is doing, and that entire narrative disappears. 
So I do believe that that is a reversal technique for the great resignation that people are not exploring is the degree to which they are actually noticing authentically, no matter how small, the positive contributions that people are making and actually taking the time to share them. So I hear the boss needs to acknowledge the positive. What's the tool for the employee? Because I realize all day long we're making sense of things that happen. Someone said hello, someone didn't smile. Literally millions of little micro situations that happen. And my brain is the meaning-making machine that says, Sue's mad at me because she didn't smile and usually she smiles. Well, the reality is Sue just broke her foot and she's wearing high heel shoes and her foot hurts. <laughs> so the lack of smile has nothing to do with how Sue feels about me. Mm-hmm. How are we teaching employees also to inquire? Yeah. Hey, I noticed you seem a little out of sorts today. How can I help? Right. Rather than, well, or I could say, look, you didn't smile at me. (laughs) Whatever the question is, that's probably not helpful. (laughs) But how do we restore the balance when something looks off, especially if it's a boss, to an employee? How do I, as the employee, say, hey, can you give me some feedback about that report I wrote? You looked distracted when you were reading it, or you looked frustrated. I like that question because it thinks so highly of employees, which is sort of the whole argument here. I believe it should be a part of onboarding, essentially. I mean, in the best organizations, what I think should happen on the first day is that the CEO teaches everybody how to give feedback to the CEO. Knowing that that's not going to happen on every employee's first day, I do think having periodic moments where you are planning to model what tough upward feedback looks like for everybody so that they feel that they have real-time permission to do that is critical. And so I would generally presume that the level of meaningful, particularly corrective feedback that's given in the organization is capped by the willingness of the leader to receive that type of feedback, her or himself. And so if the leader is able to model that, then you've actually set that standard and set that ceiling early and hopefully often. I love the idea of doing it during onboarding. And I want to give an example. I worked with a client and they said, you know, open door policy, because that's what everyone was doing. I was working with the CIO. Someone comes in and says something that was delivered poorly and probably not very astute. CIO comes into my office later and says, why does that guy work for me? He's not very astute. It may not have been quite so nice. (laughs) The idea that we have absolutely set people up for failure when we say, my door's open, come give me feedback. Some guy walks in and blasts the CIO. You know, I don't like this. This is a terrible company. One of those things. Nobody had given that employee instruction on how to go to your boss's boss's boss. First of all, that may not have been wise. And if delivered poorly, this this person has only one interaction with the employee and it's extremely negative. Yeah. So we do ourselves a disservice when we say, yeah, of course I want your feedback, but didn't teach him what constructive look like. Right. And this is, again, just sort of taking a note from the Great Teachers book again, which is to say, if you want something that is complex and and sort of counter to people's emotional circumstances at that moment, which is to say, I'm pissed off about this person who works for me and I like need to go tell my boss about it right now. 
that's a complex situation. If people are going to learn something complex like that, they need to see it modeled. They can't just have advice. They can't just have a couple of bullets. And so a great teacher will model this. And what I think a great leader will do beyond just modeling it is actually praise it, attach positive value to it, and show that they're going out of their way to make that clear to the team. So yes, during onboarding, it would be great if what people saw leaders do was either shared by email or, or live or an introductory kind of declaration. Here's an example of somebody who gave me fantastic feedback. Here's what it looked like. Here's what they said. And here's what happened as a result. In fact, let me bring that person up here right now, and you can ask them questions about how they went about it. Or if it all happened on email, actually sharing that entire email. People respond to, number one, artifacts more than they respond to advice. And people respond to peers more than they respond to leaders even. So if you're actually modeling that behavior through peer interaction, people are going to attach meaning to that. And I, I think it'll be fairly unforgettable for them. That's not to say that it's going to be easy for them to give tough feedback, upwardly particular, but for them to have in their debate as to whether they should go into their boss's office and say this thing, to add to that confusion a story of somebody just like them who they know went and did that and had success from it, I think does make a difference. The reality that that's not really going to happen unless a leader themselves is proactive about doing that is a shame, but it's the reality. And so the best leaders who do in fact want that are going to have to schedule that for themselves because they won't easily think of it on the fly. And this gets back to the patriarchal, the assumption the boss knows better than me or the boss is unapproachable, whether or not that is accurate in any specific company. Many, especially new employees who don't know the culture, will come in with assumptions about their prior company. So if they were patriarchal, the employee is going to come in assuming that they don't have the opportunity to give feedback. So it has to happen in onboarding or sometime during that employee journey before it feels safe. Even if they have the skills, I'm not going to go in and tell the CEO anything constructive until I have not a personal invitation, but have a sense that that is safe and welcome. Yeah. Because it would be dumb to do anything else. Exactly. And when the option is to do something that seems difficult or play it safe, right, the choice is typically clear. The space that a boss could create where they reverse the incentives of that choice, I actually think, again, the successful teacher histories tell us. And so the most effective thing that a brand new student in a classroom can experience is being attached to a peer so think of the buddy system, right? If you were ever new at a school and the school set you up with a buddy, they were probably not that intentional about it. But when a school is intentional about that, they attach you to a buddy who is going to somehow reflect your experience and show you the right ways to deal with it. So if you're brand new, they worry you'll struggle to make friends, they'll worry you struggle to catch up academically, they'd be right to attach you to a buddy who had to deal with that themselves and has many of the habits that help you deal with that. So that attach you to a buddy who is really good at asking questions when they're confused or really good at doing their homework every night so that they can actually be prepared for a class the next day because we will immediately attune ourselves to peers in a brand new situation. And this is the value of, of onboarding. So I think fantastic leaders are all the time actually creating positive peer moments, particularly during onboarding where people who are going to need to understand really complex skills are just getting them by osmosis from up here. 
And in fact, the, the lift of that is so small and so much more complex, the sort of cost efficiency is clear. You're so frustrated by an employee's inability to give effective feedback or take a risk on doing so or pay attention to the details that matter in this organization. Trying to sit down and teach them, number one, the value of those things, and number two, how to do those things. Number one, we don't tend to do that. We don't tend to have the time to do that. Number two, it doesn't really work. However, forcing them to spend benign time attached to uh, a peer who does, in fact, do those things typically accomplishes all that with great success and, of course, way, way less time spent on all sides. And again, when you're looking at situations where underperforming employees are succeeding left and right, this is what leaders are doing. And again, same thing that the classroom teacher who is beating the odds is consistently doing. So when we do leadership programs, as people enter a cohort, because it's several month long program, we assign learning partners. And we do that through very scientific assessments so that we're matching them with people with like mindsets and skills. We're not assigning someone who's a super performer with our lowest skilled. So someone with 20 years experience with someone with three years experience, because we want them to be more equally peer mentors. And that has helped immeasurably because they can ask the questions and try things out that may not feel safe to do in front of a large group, but they can in groups of between two and four. It's very well thought out. I think the unit of learning in that situation, I always think of as replicable behaviors. So if the peer mentoring somebody at an organization is deemed successful, great. But if the person being mentored thinks, well, I actually can't replicate any of the things this person is doing. They've got this mojo or they've got all this experience or they've just got these longstanding relationships and they attribute all the success they should be learning to things they themselves cannot choose to do then you've obviously wasted your time. But if you're drawing attention to the fact, no, this person is successful in building relationships because they constantly follow up on every outreach that somebody makes, that's a replicable behavior. And we can draw attention to that in the peer mentorship relationship. And if they are, in fact, succeeding with clients at a higher level, they have better numbers, et cetera, you do need to do the work as a leader of breaking down what replicable choices are they making to do that? So do they keep their client list better organized? Do they have better attention to client interaction? Do they uh, systematize their wins in a way that they can learn from them? So I do think this is the thing is that we simultaneous with feeling like we're underperforming is again, that feeling that the boss disapproves of us and that we're on the outs. And then also is this feeling that everybody who is succeeding here is not succeeding in a way I can replicate. And so if the boss is actively countering all those impulses, which again, I would contend, not hard to do, just takes simple recognition of clear behavior and, and positive contributions this person's making. You've got a whole new set of employees who are ready to do way more. And you've also got a whole pool of employees who you haven't hired yet because they don't think they'll perform as well, who are in fact capable of growing a lot faster than you think. Is there an impact along gender lines? Because the research that women will apply for jobs when they mostly have the skills and men tend to apply for jobs when they have far fewer skills. So how does this play out? Certainly it would, I think, in the attraction to hire, but I wonder in the job, does it also fall somewhat on gender lines? 
Fascinating. I'll be honest and say I haven't, I haven't looked at it with that lens as strongly as your question demands. So I, I'd want to be honest about that. What I do, in fact, see is that people associate a type of level of demand from a boss with a patriarchal approach, which is to say that I'm accustomed or I presume a leadership style that is insensitive to my developmental needs. And I do think people make assumptions about who's willing to do that along gender lines. I also think men have extraordinary privilege there where you're um, the amount of developmental work a male leader can do and be considered developmentally attentive is relatively low to what I believe a female leader does. And the expectations for the sensitivity level and the kind of emotionality of a female leader are far higher than they are for men. And so what I would imagine is that on all sides of that, there are advantages and disadvantages. I also see along so many different lines of difference, the idea of imposter syndrome playing a huge role in the effects of underperformance on an employee's long-term trajectory. And so if you're in an organization that makes you feel marginalized because of your gender, your gender identity, makes you feel marginalized because of your race, then the degree to which a small act of underperformance or mistake is going to impact your connection to the organization. And therefore, the amount of proactive work a leader needs to do to counter that is just far greater. I consider myself fortunate to be working in moments right now where people are being more vocal about where those are obstacles. But of course, many of them are still being kept in the shadows. And so a leader would do well to presume that that's happening all the time and to presume that a ton of proactivity on their part is needed for people to feel included. And that if they don't feel included, the likelihood that underperformance is going to continue is higher. We are far too accustomed to separating those two things. There's your social experience at work and then there's your performance. No great teacher in a classroom would ever assume those are separate. In fact, this is true of adults. Thank you so much for bringing inclusion in. As you talk about relating, we do relate differently based on our group, whether it's gender, gender identity, racial, ethnicity, religion. Each of us comes with a different layer and story in our head about what relating looks like and the consequence of being kicked out of the group. Right the consequence of losing my job and how quickly will I find a new one, the consequence of if I don't belong, it will feel like I'm never going to be included or belong again. Right. And I even think of colleagues, successful colleagues. One comes to mind specifically, very, very successful. He and his partner broke up and he sounded like he would never get another date in his life. (laughs) And that the evidence to that was so contrary. Mm. This is someone who was out every night, but the meaning making story was completely lacking evidence. And yet that sense of belonging infused the imposter syndrome piece and drove, I would say, some probably what appeared to be fairly bizarre behavior whenever he thought he was at risk of losing his professional role or affiliation with that prestigious company. Listening to you describe it, it's a universal experience in most failure. Failure that we feel certain as being, first of all, witnessed by everybody, even if it's not. Failure that we feel like means something uh, kind of cataclysmic for our lives. And 
the resonance of that with people's degree of imposter syndrome being so high. And just thinking about the magnitude of all of that is actually could make me feel relatively hopeless as a leader if I did not know how many possibilities there are for countering it as a leader. Beautiful. If there weren't these very simple ways to counter it as a leader, we would not see successful teachers in classrooms with kids who have been academically underserved. We just wouldn't see it. But since we do, in fact, see that, and those people have many things in common, we do know, in fact, that the sense of belonging can be created relatively quickly and with relatively little expense to the schedule, to the relationships. And of course, right, when it's done, the relationships and the schedule all improves in value. So the reality that you as a leader are in control of how included somebody feels and that the way you control it is through tiny micro actions is both terrifying and also empowering. What I recommend to folks is schedule the way in which it's going to empower you. Like you are not going to remember to create micro moments that make people feel included, make them feel approved of, and make them feel successful so that those issues are not clouding their thinking and keeping them from performing. You will have to schedule that for yourself. It will not be your instinct, especially if you're perfectionist or type A, which tends to be the DNA of those who are promoted into leadership. It is not on your mind in your back pocket to be constantly pulling out all the tiny little things that you wish would replicate or that you wish folks knew your approval about. So you're going to have to sort of put it on your, uh, on your actual calendar and spend the time communicating it. Good news is it won't take that much time. Yeah, I'm thinking of, of someone specifically that I coached. And one of my pieces of guidance was to him was seven compliments during the day. Mm-hmm. And it just so counterintuitive to this individual who was a lovely person. So I'm not saying he was some, you know, cartoon villain, right. really lovely guy. But his point was like, I have to praise people for coming to work, doing their jobs, showing up dressed. <laughs> yes, you find areas where someone has done something good. And this gets back to your point that especially for underperformers, who are the ones we least likely to praise, he would go to the you know top performer that everyone's praising and they don't need it and not to the lower performer who so desperately needs attention from the boss, build the relationship, see something good in me. And what I hear is this is an important antidote to what we have done in the past, which is I keep a log of where someone is underperforming and I go point it out very quickly because you need to give feedback quickly and help them improve and all those things. This is saying opposite of that, I need to find also in some reasonable balance where they are doing well, amplify that. And not that I ignore especially egregious underperformance. Correct. But it's a both. Yes. And that it does not in any way keep you from sharing the many negative things you might notice that affect the performance of your team, the sort of problem solving that's needed to correct it, or in any way hiding the brutal realities of what you're what you're facing. In fact, I think the wrong way to think about how we change these trajectories is that we need to be masking negatives and accentuating positives. I think the people actually who do this best have a totally different understanding, which is that yes, the workspace and my team are full of negatives and things that need to improve. They're also full of positives that nobody ever notices or talks about. And 
it is my job as a guardian of this team to ensure that those are discussed and talked about because they are in fact happening. So if you do have a team that shows up on time every day and never in any way inconveniences anybody because of their personal lives infringing on their on their work life, we could have one argument that says to praise that is to lower expectations. Of course, you should be doing that. The other argument is to say, there are probably a number of choices being made every day that are not always easy to make that create that reality. And if I don't ever recognize those choices, I'm in danger of losing them. So the person who makes the choice for the latter is actually inspiring folks to keep making those choices, which keeps the impact alive. And if you are in fact having that mindset, there's absolutely no cost to your standard, your value of excellence in noting that people are making positive choices that are making things effective. And so that's, that's what I would essentially say is like, stop thinking of it as there is uh, this kind of quantity of positive, negative that I need to give. Start thinking is like, there is truth and the truth contains both positive choices and negative choices. The positive choices are far less likely to be recognized. And in doing that, in allowing that to happen, I am masking the truth. And so if I am a truthful leader, I am going the extra mile to accentuate positive choices, to, to name positive choices so that they will in fact continue. I'm just not in organizations that do this anymore, but I assume there are either like the Bravo Awards where people get cards or stars or trinkets of some sorts to say, thank you for going above and beyond to help me get this proposal done or whatever the finding a way to recognize people who do good work. And we used to have employee of the month and perfect attendance and all of those things that again, I organizations may still, I just haven't been part of that for a while. How do you feel about that kind of acknowledgement? I think it's all effective if it's unit of recognition is the replicable behavior. So again, if there's an employee of the month, and we know that always goes to somebody who has consistently done X, Y, or Z thing that we all can do, then that is effective. Because every time somebody is awarded that, we ask ourselves, am I doing enough of those things? And every time we ask ourselves, am I doing enough of those things? It in fact encourages us to do it more. So that will lead to performance improvement. I think the mistake to make, of course, is for it to be kind of musical chairs sort of say that this is just an honor that we believe keeps morale high and therefore everybody needs their share of it. And it's effectively a happy hour, not actually anything that has to do with performance. So, you know, I think in general, there's morale that is earned and there's morale that is given. Both are important. Morale that is earned is actually culture and performance building. And that's what I would say is the opportunity with all morale. So, if you're in fact giving morale straight away to somebody, why not attach it or index it to a set of behaviors that you wish people were doing more of? And so if, if ever somebody were to ask me to kind of audit their recognition systems, the first question I would ask is like, are employees clear on the most critical behaviors that lead to success in this organization? And the second question would be, do these recognition systems explicitly name how those being recognized are exhibiting those behaviors. And that means just every time that you're recognizing somebody, you're reinforcing the behaviors that are leading to results in your organization, 
you know, I think a good leader will sort of adjust and look at new sets of behaviors that are constantly happening. But the reality is a consistent message that these behaviors get rewarded and those behaviors are in fact the ones that lead to critical success is like incredibly healthy. I assume you're doing it in front of people so that that permeates and then you have a way to tell the stories and there's some visual, again, whether it's a thing they put on their desks or a thing on the wall or the roving plaque or or the humor of the, the funky doll thing that doesn't have to be expensive. It can also be given in humor. Absolutely. And again, as long as it's clear what this is in response to, that it's not wasted, right? You're, you're not telling people, when we recognize you, you have no idea what that's for. Or because what will actually happen is that people's narratives will take over and say, well, what it's for is just being a favorite employee or being closer to the boss or being there for a long time or something that is not going to enhance my performance. So the experience of doing it publicly, I think there are a number of different ways that that is effective. One is to say, like, why not, right? If you're going to give somebody some recognition for something, why not ensure other people hear it? That way, what gets recognized not only gets repeated, but maybe gets repeated by a few others. The other opportunities are deeper, which is sort of what we talked about a little while ago, where if you are recognizing somebody in front of their peers, they now have a peer-maintained standard to live up to. So if, uh, if nobody on the team knew you were extremely attentive to details in, let's say, uh, quarterly budget digests, and suddenly it was announced that you were, your attention to that skill is going to increase. And your sort of excitement to live up to what people are now expecting of you across the organization has also increased. So it's a positive experience, not just a performance enhancing experience. And the other thing is that it helps with belonging. So for you to feel like not only you're doing well here, but that others know exactly what it is you're doing well here is psychologically transformational. And I do think leads to performance trajectories flipping and improving with with a lot of folks who are struggling. Can we go to the idea of belonging and why it's so important? And is that at every level or is that at a, a specific level in the organization? I have found that it, it means something at every level and that just certain people might be better at masking the negative impact of not belonging on their performance for shorter periods of time. For example, somebody who has lived a life of achievement and has told themselves a story that they don't need anybody else to succeed might be very good at pulling off a lot of achievements within a, a team or organization uh, without ever feeling close to or welcomed by that team. What that means is that person is having a negative personal experience while achieving. If I were that person's leader, I'd probably recognize that is a missed opportunity, right? If this person was having a better personal experience, they would be achieving even more. I do think belonging is not only, I used to think of it as um, it's the reward for success, so I used to bring together you know, people on my team and say, essentially, it takes a very special person to work here. We have a hunch that you are that person, but let's see. <laughs> and if you show us success, then you'll be welcomed and you'll feel secure. And I thought that was the right sort of carrot. What it really is, of course, is a stick, is to say that you're going to be experiencing disharmony and a sense of dread and instability until you perform. 
And, you know, we can debate back and forth which is more effective. I feel pretty clear that folks who are told you were hired for this role because we already know you are successful at these three things and those are the three things we need. That just means that person has to immediately jump in and with a lot of excitement and honor, start showing those three things really quickly. So I do in fact think that the reward of inclusion and membership is misplaced. In fact, is not a reward, it's a punishment. And in fact, the real reward is feeling chosen, is feeling selected because you already belong. And not only will that decrease some of the kind of affective obstacles you experience to doing well at work, feeling like you can communicate more easily, feeling you know happier throughout the day, but it actually gives you a higher standard for your performance right away to feel like you belong. I see no reason for folks not to strive for uh, a sense of inclusion and membership in everybody they employ. Otherwise, why take the time to employ them? It strikes me as the term psychological safety, that when I feel safe to perform, I'm going to perform better because I'm going to take risks. And it also connects to resilience. When I feel connected to people with whom I work, I am going to bounce back quicker, the whole anti-fragile, I'm I'm going to be able to navigate complexity, one, because I'll take the risk believing I'm going to be supported by my colleagues, which is foundational in an environment where we lack certainty. So it seems like on the surface that this idea of group belonging has several different layers, all important, especially in uncertain times. It's not just a nice to have, it's great that people go hang out at lunch, but that it actually significantly contributes to the organizational vibrancy. Of course, and probably doesn't warrant saying, but, but I'll say it anyway, which is that you don't need to have all the social interactions, the happy hours and the lunch hangouts to feel like you belong for a leader to communicate to you that because of these things that you're doing, you are one of us, you are on our team, you belong here, and for their peers to give them the same message it in no way requires a camp counselor to help ensure that there's a lot of social activity going on. I do think when you're talking about resilience, this is where lines of difference and privilege, racism, gender inequality at work. I mean, I can't honestly say that I know what it's like as a, you know, a white guy with tons of unearned privilege throughout my entire history to feel the burden of non-inclusion in many spaces that by default just seem to include me. I have no idea what that's like on my energy level. I have no idea what that's like on my motivation. I do think because, number one, it's always been true that these things are affecting people at work and affecting their performance. Even high performers are experiencing this as a negative. But number two, we're talking about it more. And number three, as a result of that conversation, people are using it as a reason to join and leave organizations, the degree to which they're experiencing that. Again, they always have, but they're going to say it now which means that bosses are going to be developing in a culture where that's expected of them. And so are you able to create that psychological safety to maximize that resilience and also constantly breaking down the barriers to non-inclusion in a way that is visible to your team? And that is just like not something that we're putting in leader school yet. And uh, I do believe the people who emerge most successful over the next decade or so are going to have that quality. You said something that I want to revisit. This isn't being a camp counselor, so I don't need to have happy hours. In fact, it may hurt mm -hmm. if people already, if I've got folks with young kids who never join because they're 
life situation doesn't allow it. Or if I've got someone who drinks too much and inappropriately is friendly with one of their colleagues. I mean, there are just so many things that happen. I'm not opposed to drinking, but there are so many things that go wrong in some situations that I think a lot of companies are really reducing the frequency of those events, especially free unlimited alcohol. Yeah. That creating a working environment, as you've said, that's inclusive and supportive and psychologically safe is a very different tact or tactic than throwing a bunch of parties where I have to get a babysitter and show up in the right outfit with a date when I'm single or whatever the hurdle is for folks that creates another issue of inclusion. I show up to work every day or I show up on Zoom every day create an environment for me to be included doing my job, not showing up to a party. Absolutely. And what we're talking about, I experience often as a sense of us at work, you know, this very positive experience that there's an us when I, when I go to work and join my team. And, and sometimes it's an us versus them. And that can be empowering uh, as well. You know, if you're fighting against something or you're fighting the competition and that can help bolster it but a sense of belonging creates a sense of us. And if in fact we associate that usness with happy hours and basketball games and trips to events outside of work, the danger is, is not just that we're encouraging behaviors that aren't necessarily helpful or putting somebody on the spot. It's that we're associating celebration and belonging in the organization with social ability, not work performance. And again, you know, the, the great equalizer here should be people's ability to grow and succeed at work because of your leadership and your development. So what would be most important to counter that is ensure that the reasons for celebration are always clear and that those, those clear reasons are replicable behaviors that everybody could be doing more of. And if you're going to be a top tier organization, that those replicable behaviors that everybody can do more of are in fact the ones that lead to greater success uh, in your field. And so I think the right approach, you know, organizationally would be a leader who actually like asks the question, who are the most successful performers on our team? What are the replicable behaviors that they have in common? Really looking for those and then using that as your performance management system. And that is to say, not just your structured performance management, but how you hire, how you praise, how you frame correction, how you associate peer mentorship relationships across the organization. So all these human systems can have at the heart activities and behaviors that everybody can choose to do, which means that everybody can improve. I, I don't think it's that much of a stretch, like, you know, where we might be saying, I really love how savvy and informed our top performers are, then ask the question, well, what replicable behaviors are those people using to become what you call savvy, to become what you call informed? And you'll probably break that down to, they read these things every day. They ask these questions of these folks every day. They look at these two things alongside each other and so on. Things that everybody can be doing more of. So these opportunities for morale building, as we say, are actually opportunities for culture building, are actually opportunities for performance building, if you are putting at the center these, these behaviors that others can choose to do. I assume then that these can also happen 
either in the office or while we're working remotely, that they may be slightly different tacks or tactics, and that I can create a sense of belonging whether or not we ever physically show up in the same room. Absolutely. And I'd actually even say that I've seen people find their niche in doing this virtually, like actually improve their ability to, to lead in this way virtually because they're experiencing so much of their work day through text online. So through either um, the emails they're writing, the chats they're putting into Zoom, or uh, you know they just have to structure their time differently because they're at home, they're much more disciplined about how they're communicating. And so if somebody who you gave the advice to seven compliments a day is spending their entire day on Zoom, it's actually going to take way less out of them to give those compliments using the Zoom chat along with the voice function, along with their email, and not feeling the sort of pressures pulling them in every direction across the office space to distract from that. So um, for folks who are trying to really discipline themselves to counteract these forces that are keeping people from growing and keeping these people from feeling like they are belonging and they're learning in the organization, they're able to execute those with greater fidelity and consistency in virtual life. The question is, like, do they know that's valuable to begin with? And are they even you know, instinctively trying to do that? Which, again, most people aren't. Do you have one recommendation that leaders should be doing as a result of this show? Yeah. I realize it's much bigger and more complex. My most common piece of advice that I think works for everybody, and I have to give it to myself quarterly, is ask what high performance means in your organization, and then ask of those who are achieving it what it is they're doing to achieve it. And you pick the top three behaviors on that list. And you ensure that every time you see anybody demonstrating those behaviors, you name it. And so what is the micro move on that? You could simply have a five minute calendar review at the end of each day or each week that says, look at the list of those you employ. Did any of them demonstrate these behaviors? And if so, how are you going to announce it? It could be a weekly digest. It could be a quick email. It could be a quick email to them. It could be a quick email to everybody. I would imagine the total expense of time on the front end and then on upkeep would probably average out to about 20 minutes a week. Which many of us can do yeah. if we do less of something else. Not to mention the time it saves if you're actually creating a deeper sense of belonging and changing people's performance trajectories simultaneously. Yeah, if this impacts productivity, it's worth 20 minutes. Of course. Brilliant. So Benjamin, how would people find you? I'm at benmarkovitz.com, and that's Markovitz with a C and a V as in Victor. And probably the best way to get started there is I have a little survey quiz thing that uh, asks folks to kind of assess their current instincts on this approach. How much are you oriented towards growing your employees? How likely is it that you'll notice the positive contributions they'll make, et cetera, and sort of helps people self-assess on the amount of this that they actually really do need to do, because some folks might be already there. But uh, I, I find it really important to kind of check myself regularly on this. So I, I like to offer opp opportunities for folks to do that. Brilliant. I love the quizzes because it does help me find an objective. How am I doing now if I'm honest with myself? And where do I want to be? What are my gaps? And then how do I invest that time? As you said, find out what what are the repeatable behaviors I want to encourage and notice them. Notice them publicly, notice them on Zoom, notice them wherever I notice them because I can't praise too often, I can praise too little. 
That's right. Well said. So to our listeners, thank you for joining us. And for a daily leadership tidbit from us and from our guests, be sure to follow us, the Innovative Leadership Institute on LinkedIn. <music>